Welcome back to CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins, and I'm the co-founder of an organization called Student Energy and the host of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is an hour-long show co-produced by Student Energy and CJSW designed to take a long-form approach to discussing, tackling, and exploring the energy system. I'm beyond excited at tonight's show as we will be making history with the first ever debate featuring Enbridge, the Coastal First Nations, and renowned environmentalist Sapora Berman. We have John Carruthers, the president of Northern Gateway, as well as Art Sterrett, the executive director of the Coastal First Nations, joining us to discuss what pipelines and the Northern Gateway pipeline mean for Canada as a whole. We will also explore a business case for sustainability, review This Month in Energy, and have global updates from our volunteer team. As always, we ask that you all join along and use hashtag Energy Voices on Facebook and Twitter to make your thoughts heard, to ask questions of our panelists, and to engage in this dialogue. If you want to know more about the Energy Voices radio show or our organization, Student Energy, I encourage you to visit studentenergy.org where you can learn more about the role that our organization is trying to play in transitioning our world to a sustainable energy future. For any students that are listening, we encourage you to also look at studentenergysummits.com and take a look at one of the five regional summits that we will be hosting in New York, Cape Town, Aberdeen, Mexico City, and Beijing this June. I'm thrilled to now welcome Art Sterrett, John Carruthers, and Sabora Berman into the studio for what is the first ever public debate that these three have had on the Northern Gateway Pipeline. So the way we're going to structure this conversation is we're going to have each uh, of the three give their perspective on pipelines and and their thoughts on the the pros and cons and and their specific ideas on what they think are important aspects of this conversation. And then once they've each had a chance to frame uh, the conversation from their viewpoint, we'll open it up to a a more broad uh, public conversation from there. So to kick things off, we're going to ask Tispora if you can uh, provide for us first the environmental viewpoint on pipelines in general and specifically the the Northern Gateway Pipeline. So uh, if you can take a a minute or two and give us what is the the picture of the environmental concerns on Northern Gateway and pipeline projects in general. Sure, um, I'd be happy to. Uh, There are a number of concerns related to the Northern Gateway Pipeline um, and um, to many of the pipeline proposals projects that are proposed uh, from the oil sands uh, across Canada and, in fact, North America. If you look at specifically the Northern Gateway Pipeline, um, the proposal is to pump about 525,000 barrels per day of diluted bitumen through that pipeline, and that will have significant impacts on our climate, our land, our water, and air. The fact is that these pipelines are only necessary if the uh, big oil companies are planning to expand. Uh, the oil sands. An expansion of about 525,000 barrels consumes 200 million barrels uh, of of processing water. It consumes about 74 billion cubic feet of natural gas. It would disturb about 12.5 square kilometers of land um, and produce about 25 million barrels of toxic tailings. And recent reports from the federal government say that that's will contribute to about 2.7 million barrels of seepage of toxic tailings into lakes and groundwater and surface water in Alberta. 
When moving to, you know, climate pollution and emissions, the Northern Gateway Pipeline Project would facilitate the emission of about 6.5 megatons of greenhouse gases annually due to expanded oil sands production. So that's about the equivalent of adding 1.6 million cars um, each year uh, uh, to Canada. Um, and so that's a significant uh, issue considering that uh, climate safety and the dramatic rise in extreme weather, et cetera, and how it's very clear from reports from the United Nations to the World Bank and many others that we need to be reducing our climate pollution and moving to safer and cleaner energy. But really, the biggest implications are a result of oil spills and leaks. And I think what we have seen clearly in the last couple of years is the question of whether or not there will be a major oil spill as a result uh, of this pipeline is, is not really an if, but a when. Uh, Coast Guard analysis estimates that a major spill could be expected in Canadian waters every approximately seven years. And I think the thing that was most concerning to me when I started reading up on this issue is that industry and government reports put success of a cleanup of a spill at best at 15%. What that means is they're defining success as leaving 85% of toxic bitumen in, in the water. This would have significant impacts on our fisheries, on our tourism, and on the health of the coast, and on human health. I, I think we only have to look to the disaster that was the result of Enbridge negligence in Kalamazoo to understand the kind of impacts uh, of a spill. And the U.S. estimates that in that case, in the Kalamazoo River, um, there were about a million gallons of dilbit leaked into the Kalamazoo River. Cleanup has surpassed now a billion dollars. Um, 35 miles of the Kalamazoo River was closed for two years. And while I appreciate uh, a lot of the um, issues that Enbridge has been trying to address over the last couple of years in, in regards to safety, the fact is that still happened as a result of human error. And, of course, many people know that um, the Transportation Safety Board in the U.S. you know, referred to uh, the serious problems. Um, and almost a complete breakdown of safety at Enbridge as a result uh, of what happened in Kalamazoo. This specific pipeline, Northern Gateway, is also proposed to go through the heart of the Great Bear Rainforest, one of the protected areas in Canada, protected because it's such an incredibly unique ecosystem. So when we move to the impacts from the ocean and spills to the potential for leaks along the pipeline, you know, there are very serious environmental impacts there because this pipeline is proposed to cross hundreds uh, of rivers and streams uh, throughout British Columbia. So the fact is, we know that these pipelines leak, and we've seen it um, in Alberta uh, with significant pipeline incidents. You know, only in the last 13 years, since 2000, there have been a thousand oil spills and leaks in Alberta, and the safety incident rate has doubled in the past decade. So there are significant concerns on the environment from water issues to safety issues, from oil spills to oil leaks. Mm -hmm. So thanks for setting the context, the context for us. Uh, to switch gears a little bit, um, one of the things that's been fascinating with both the Northern Gateway Pipeline and the Keystone XL Pipeline project that are both proposed uh, has been the response from the environmental community and the environmental movement. That, uh, so one of the questions I wanted to pose to you as a follow-up is, why do you feel that it's that are, it's these two projects, and, and why do you think the environmental movement has has finally sort of woken up and and been 
able to rally such support for these the the their negative response to these two projects? You know, I think in part it's because um, that these issues touch the hearts of so many people because of their broad impacts. Um, because the proposals have impacts on water safety, they have impacts on human health, they have uh, serious impacts um, on uh, uh, First Nations rights, as I'm sure uh, Art Starrett will speak about. And so in some ways, it's a perfect storm. You know, it's not just about the environmental movement organizing. It's about environmental concerns being married uh, with the concerns of many others. In the case of Northern Gateway, you have um, unions, uh, the largest union uh, in Canada, opposed to the project. You have many municipal governments. You have hundreds of uh, First Nations, uh, tourism operators, fisheries operators, so it, it, it is no longer just an environmental issue. It, it, it's about how are we developing our economy and, um, and, and who's deciding, who gets to choose, who bears the risks, and who benefits. And I, and I think that that is in part, you know, looking at those issues, that means that it is, it's not just about um, environmental issues anymore. It's also about democracy. It's also about economics. Um, and in the climate era, these are critical questions for our society to address. And I think a lot of people have been very frustrated um, by the lobby by, of companies like Enbridge um, and the enormous expenditure on advertising and, in some cases, outright bullying by companies like TransCanada and Enbridge on these pipelines to try and uh, convince people that we don't have a choice but to support these projects when the majority of the benefits come to their shareholders, many of whom, the majority of whom, aren't even Canadian. Mm -hmm. And so the the final question I want to get some context from you on uh, is around one of the criticisms of the environmental movement um, from the perspective that uh, there's often a lot of focus on going after the specific pipeline project as opposed to trying to, to end the 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 end use of a pipeline is access to fossil fuels. And we've so far been unable outside of British Columbia to really rally any sort of support around a carbon tax or initiatives that will specifically limit the use of fossil fuels. So why do you think that pipelines have been the, the lightning rod as opposed to something that specifically targets the actual end use of fossil fuels? Well, I, I think in part it's because these are very tangible projects um, that affect people in their own communities, um, you know, thousands of people in their, um, literally in their backyards and in their livelihood that has galvanized, galvanized a lot of people, you know, and I meet with farmers in Nebraska or, or tourism and fisheries operators up north. They may have started working on these issues and being concerned about these pipelines because of their local impacts. But as they dig into the issues, they start to have broader concerns about the climate implications. And and so that has really provided a focal point and a rallying point. And the fact is that many international bodies have said that if we are going to address the climate crisis, if we're going to move towards ensuring that we have a safe climate, that we're dealing with the dramatic increase of extreme weather, then we need to stop building dirty fossil fuel infrastructure like pipelines and start putting that kind of capital and that kind of research and development towards cleaner, safer alternatives. And it's, it's now very clear that we have the technology to move towards cleaner, safer uh, um, 
initiatives. And the, the fact is, if we had, for example, vehicle efficiency regulations that were as strong as what Europe is currently pro- proposing, which the major car companies can meet, so they can make more efficient cars that require us to buy less gas, and that doesn't change people's quality of life. And if that vehicle efficiency regulation were put into North America, we would use 50% less oil and gas. We have the technology today to reduce our dependence on oil and fossil fuels and to move to cleaner, safer alternatives. But in many cases, it is the oil industry and the pipeline industry that stands in our way, that is lobbying against that kind of advanced economy and, and, and progress. So the, the pipeline uh, campaigns have become a focal point for really, I think, a turning point in history where we stop investing in this kind of infrastructure and start investing uh, in, in the advanced energy economy. Okay, perfect. Thanks so much for all the, the background and thought. Uh, we'll get back to you with some of the group questions, and then I'm going to transition over to John now to give us an industry perspective on pipelines and the project. Um, so just to set the context for any of our listeners that are uh, unfamiliar with uh, the larger energy systems and pipelines in, generals, in, in general, can you just explain to us what is the role of pipelines and pipeline operators within that system? Whose needs do you serve, uh, and why are they necessary? Yes, if we look at it from a a pipeline operator perspective, our role is to move energy from where it's located to where it's needed. So all of the people in the globe uh, rely on energy and it improves our quality of life significantly. There's a strong correlation between quality of life and the access to energy. So certainly uh, we use energy, we need to move it from where it's located and then you need to move it in the, the safest and most economical way. And that's the role of pipelines in terms of moving that energy to where people are using it. Okay, perfect. And can you give us a 30-second overview on pipeline economics in general? So uh, assuming you're moving an individual barrel of oil, who gets paid and and what are the economics like for pipelines? Some people believe that if the oil's in the the pipeline system, it's the pipeline operator that owns it, but that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, All of the oil that's moved in the Enbridge system would be owned by shippers, third-party shippers who, who commit to moving it and paying a toll for moving that. So uh, pipeline companies are generally uh, more utility-based and, and they mm-hmm. would get a cost of service type uh, return for their investment. The the funds, the, the real uh, value goes to, in this case, Canadians, where Canadians' largest resource, oil, and its most important export, and we're a, a very strong exporting country and our, and our most available resource is not getting full value. And a lot of studies would have indicated that the cost to Canadians is something the order of fifty million dollars per day, so you're getting, you know, you're approaching. Well, you're over fifteen billion dollars, and, and that number varies. But certainly over the past few years, you've seen numbers in that magnitude. So Canada's not getting full value for its resource. So that's really where the the drive, the economics come in to Canadians, uh, not the pipeline company, which would get a regulated return. Okay, and obviously the Northern Gateway is a, an extremely important and contentious topic in uh, Canadian discussion right now. Um, but in your opinion, uh, what is the benefit from this project? If the Northern Gateway pipeline is approved, what is the aggregate benefit to, to Canada should it be approved? Well, we've been very fortunate as Canadians to sit atop the world's largest oil market, and that served us very well for, for decades. We've now, though, seen that as U.S. production increases, U.S. demand goes down, uh, where our growing resource has, does not have access to a a growing large market. So that's clearly what Northern Gateway did. 
it accesses the Pacific Rim where we can uh, access the markets of China, India, Southern Korea, the growing markets there that need the energy so that they can improve their quality of life. So really, mm -hmm. Northern Gateway marries that large resource in Canada that we can produce from an environmentally sound perspective and uh, provide it to those countries that need energy so that they can improve their quality of life as well. Okay. And can you comment for us on the role that you feel uh, the provincial governments of British Columbia, Alberta, and also the federal government play or should play in a project like this? Well, really what the governments need to do is to determine if the project's in the Canadian public interest. And, and that brings in all aspects from an environmental, a social, an economic perspective. So they look, need to look at all those and they also need to look at them from a, a national, provincial, regional community basis. So the, the role of the government in this case, because we cross provincial boundaries and we export to an international market, it's regulated by the National Energy Board and the Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency. Uh, so those agencies look at that fundamental question is, is it in the public interest and what are the environmental impacts? Uh, provincial play a less direct role as to those national regulators in terms of uh, they can be interveners in the project, they'll have a role to play, but it's a national interest question that's uh, the fundamental one that you need to answer. Okay. And I want to sort of tie one of your comments into one of uh, Tezpora's earlier comments um, around you had mentioned that uh, the role of pipelines is to get energy from where it's produced to where it's used. And uh, one of the previous comments was around uh, stopping the infrastructure that's in place to support the fossil fuel industry. So can you frame for us, um, under a scenario in which this pipeline isn't approved, will Alberta oil still get to market? And if so, how? Yeah. Yes. I think if you look at Northern Gateway specifically, it's to access alternative markets. And we would see that value to Canadians as to about 2 to $3 per barrel of oil that uh, goes into Canada. That could, Because you access an alternative market, it gives you optionality. Uh, it's less on the production, but certainly as you increase production for our natural resource, you need more and more infrastructure to move it. Uh, I would expect, though, if Canada doesn't provide that supply of energy to growing markets, it'll be supplied by someone other than Canada. So clearly... We've got a natural resource. We believe we can do it very sustainably. Uh, we can do it from a responsible manner. So the key is making sure you meet the standards. Uh, in terms of supporters' questions and concerns, I think they're all very legitimate concerns. Those are things that we all need to think about, worry about, and, and manage and mitigate. So I think we're aligned on that. Uh, we, we need to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. But if you look at the world, you will still see a significant role for energy of the fossil fuels, gas and oil, over the next decades because the energy the world needs energy mm -hmm. and that's where it'll be supplied the the fastest growing is the renewables but it won't be available in an economic way until we continue to work on it and, and so our company uh is like many in the industry our fastest growing area is the development of renewable energy but it's starting from a smaller base mm -hmm. so i think if you look if you start with well, does the world need energy? And if you say yes, then you try and figure out, well, where best can it come? And I think we all share the fact that we want to reduce the impact of that energy. So you try and do that. And technology is the biggest driver of that in terms of the reductions that we can see. But it's just a necessary start. Well, you need energy. Where's the best place to provide it? How do you do it safely mm -hmm. and respectful for the environment? Okay. Um, thanks for that, John. I'm going to, in the interest of time, I'm going to move over to Art to ask a few questions from his perspective. So... 
Art. Um, we've got about five minutes aside for you here to give us, I've got a few questions to run through with you from the Aboriginal perspective. Uh, and just to kick things off, uh, in your opinion, what are the biggest concerns from Aboriginal populations that uh, live and, and earn their living and have their traditions and histories based along the proposed pipeline route? Well, the, the, the really big issue with, with First Nations, whether you're on the coast of British Columbia or you're along the pipelines uh, in the interior of BC, is the environment. Um, First Nations in, in, in BC, I mean, basically we've been here forever. Uh, we, uh, we, our, our society, our culture, and our economy depends on a healthy environment. And so whenever a, something shows up, a project shows up that, uh, that poses a danger to that, uh, then, then First Nations get pretty excited about it. And on the coast, where, where my people live, uh, we have over 20,000 members on the coast of BC. Uh, we have lived off of the natural capital that comes out of the ocean for 150 years of contact with the settlers that have moved into the area. And we, uh, and more recently, have developed a land use plan for the region. We're doing a marine use plan for the region. And we're looking at how we can create a sustainable economy in an area that respects the environment that we live in. And what we found uh, as we went through this exercise is that, you know, one spill um, from a, a, a tanker uh, plying the waters of the Great Bear Rainforest would destroy all of that. Um, we know that uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, they weren't able to clean up the spill there. Uh, they were barely able to clean up 15% uh, of it. And the reality was they did about 3% and the environment gobbled up some more of it. We're looking at the Kalamazoo spill uh, in, in the Kalamazoo River where uh, Enbridge is still trying to clean up the mess there. And we just looked north of the border in northern British Columbia into Valdez, where oil is still blanketing the beaches there, uh, the herring stocks haven't returned. So all these all these things uh, add up to uh, an imminent danger to First Nations. We have not been able to get the comfort from industry, from Enbridge, from shippers, from anybody uh, that a, a spill of, of bitumen out of the tar sands can be cleaned up, and until we, we, we get that assurance. Uh, First Nations are not going to allow this project to go ahead. Uh, we have jobs now. We have a, a, a living and thriving culture. We have societies that depend on the natural uh, capital that exists in our region. And we don't see why uh, uh, we should have to give up that or imperil all of that uh, for the sake of a few companies. You know, when when we talk about uh, oil, we're not talking about uh, lots of revenue going to Canada. We're basically talking about a few uh, international companies who are going to make most of the money on this. So the amount of money that British Columbia stands to make uh, on this over time, for example, uh, adds up to about an hour of health time uh, you know, uh, covering the health needs of British Columbians. We have a sustainable economy in British Columbia. We have it in the forest. We have it in the ocean. And we don't need to jeopardize that with a non-sustainable industry. To say that, uh, that countries around the world need our energy, uh, the reality is 
we're talking about companies who want to send energy overseas in order to raise the price. And you heard uh, Mr. Carruthers talk about, you know, lifting the price of oil up by three or four or five dollars, whatever it happens to be. What Canadians need to know is that translates translates today into about 50 or 60 cents lift in the cost of a liter of oil and, or gas for them for their vehicles. So let's not kid ourselves that this is somehow uh, uh, us being charitable to the Chinese or, or people that live in India or Japan. This is about making money for, for companies. I don't have a problem with companies making money. I believe in, the, in, in capitalism as much as anybody else. What I don't believe in is one company coming along uh, pre- presenting an imminent danger to a bunch of other industries in a sustainable uh, part of the world uh, just for the sake of, of, of uh, enhancing the lives of, of a few shareholders in New York, Amsterdam, or Houston. And um, I'm going to jump in and I want to redirect a quick question to John there. One of the the arguments that comes up over and over again is the concept of a fair share. And Art brought up some very valid points that uh, there's a lot of people that feel that uh, the concept of this being in the best interest of Canadians is directly related to that concept of who is making the profit off of a pipeline uh, like this. So do you have a response as far as any specifics or numbers on, on how is that fair share calculated for Canadians? Well, certainly, it's a it's a very fair question, and, and Art raises some, again, very legitimate questions. I, I think we have to do better about getting information out so people can make a, an assessment. We ran a very detailed econometric model that looked at uh, the Canadian economy with and without Northern Gateway. So you run it without, and then you mm-hmm. you put add in Northern Gateway. And the benefits you'd see from a GDP perspective over the life of the project, so we assumed 30 years to be conservative, would have been an improvement in Canadians' GDP of $300 billion. That's $300 billion, of which BC's share would have been $55 billion. So very huge numbers. And then you look at the sensitivities of those because people can say, well, those are estimates and what are they? But again, you're starting with a, a very large number. And in our own project, even from a tax base for British Columbia, just the project itself would be over a billion dollars for the life of the project. So it's, it's quite significant. If you look at the benefits of uh, governments, including the federal government in British Columbia, all governments would see benefits of about $100 billion. Now, Alberta is the biggest beneficiary because of the royalties, but not they're not, they don't get as much as the federal government through all the tax rates. So the federal government's the biggest beneficiary. And if I look at someone like BC, they'd get the direct benefits, plus they'd get a share of federal benefits. But if you look at that bigger macro picture, we would see uh, BC government revenues approaching $15 billion over the life of the project. So those are big numbers. They're, they're very significant. In terms of the what it means to the public when we go to, the, uh, to fill up with gas, uh, they'll be negligible if any impact. What, when I talk about a 2 to $3 improvement in price, that's a net back to the resource owners and developers, it really is the money that's being today transferred to the United States. So it's not an in- increase in price. And there's absolutely no way that that in the very worst estimate might be a penny or so at the pump. And again, that's, I would say that's extremely conservative. So I think that's key. And I, I, sorry, I just have to yeah. respond to one other question that was made that um, there could be a spill. And, and I think Art used the word, it would destroy all of it. Well, certainly those were very key questions at the hearing 
what is the chance of a spill, what's the extent of it, and, and that's not the case. I mean, you'd see in, uh, if we look at Alaska as a good example, most of those systems recovered within a year or two, but you don't find blankets of oil. And the same thing with Kalamazoo. I've been down there recently. You can't, as a person, go find oil. It's, it's been all reclaimed. It was not good for two years, or especially the first year, second year was still recovering. But certainly today, it, it looks very lush, and you would never find, as an independent mm. person, any trace of oil. But again, something we have to avoid, obviously, a very key aspect. Yeah. And uh, Art, I'll, I'll push it back to you for any comments or thoughts on, on John's yeah, comments. Yeah, I, I think, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's the comment coming from the Keystone Cops, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I'm, I'm not making the judgment in the Kalamazoo, uh, the U.S. is, that, you know, there, there are regulators there that are looking at what happened out there as being akin to the Keystone Cops that happened in, in the Kalamazoo. You know, what, what we're looking at out here is uh, a province... Uh, you know, for your for your listeners, you have to understand that British Columbia is a sustainable province. Uh, you know, we have been contributing to, to Confederation for many many years. Uh, we still uh, have balanced budgets, and 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 we're a have province. You know, we don't have our hand out to Canada to have to support ourselves. At the same time, we look at Alberta and we see they've got a six or seven billion dollar deficit right now. You know, they're right in the thick of all this wealth that we're hearing about, but somehow Alberta just seems to be coming up short. Somehow this industry that is supposed to en enrich everybody is, is not quite uh, bearing the fruit that Albertans are requiring. So what's, what's happened is it's created an even greater appetite for, for the Alberta government. So they're pushing this because somehow industry has created uh, the situation where Albertans continue to have a, a, a deficit in their, in their economy. I think Canada is pushing itself to the same level. In British Columbia and with First Nations, we're not out there looking for anybody's charity. You know, uh, if, if you've got a good industry and, and, and you don't jeopardize the one that we have, then, then by all means, uh, bring it on. But when you've got an industry that is jeopardizing the 30,000 jobs on the coast of B.C. that depend on a healthy environment, we've got $3 billion a year in revenue that come out of this region. If we have a spill that is anywhere near the size of the Exxon Valdez, that's the kind of impact you're going to have. And don't, don't give us this, this, this idea that somehow all of the, re the systems in Alaska have recovered. The herring have not come back. The shellfish is still not consumable. I mean, this is 25 years later. I mean, this is a whole generation of people in Alaska who have had to put up with, with the impact of a spill. Now, we're not going to subject ourselves to that. It is absolutely inconceivable to me to have an industry propose to come into our area, and if they have one accident, they can't clean it up. That's the problem we have, 85%. Of, of what they spill is going to stay in the environment. And that's unacceptable. That is absolutely unacceptable for me as a First Nations person and for the rest of British Columbians. Mm. Well, we, we would certainly agree a spill is unacceptable. Uh, and again, these kind of issues, uh, very good questions, but we spent uh, days and days on the hearing panel with uh, experts from around the world testifying to what really was the impact. And it's not, none of it was characterized as the way Art would have. So the board sat through evidence that's provided under oath, listened to experts from all sides who gave their opinion and made a decision. And their conclusion after four years and 
thousands and thousands of pages of evidence is that these systems do recover, and and it's not it's not forever, and it's not that's, that's widespread. That's not true, John. So. Let's 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 stay with the truth here. No, no, sorry, you are, you can't say that because I can point you to the places in the document where it says exactly. We'll take that. you up to Valdez, Alaska, and let you stick your your shovel into the substrate, and you'll still find oil up there that. Uh, we the word we have is still looks like eleven day old oil that's been spilled from the Exxon Valdez. It's still there. It's still polluting the area. Uh, and, and don't misquote me. I what I basically said is unacceptable for an industry to to cause a spill that can't be cleaned up. Or is not developing the technology to clean it up. You're talking about the most wealthy industry in the world. And they haven't spent a bloody nickel on on learning how to clean up the messes that they've been making. And one of the, the things I would actually ask of both of you is uh, online afterwards, we, we always post um, f- like feedback and research and journals and articles. And so uh, to, to allow people to formulate their own opinions on these sorts of topics. So I, I would ask both of you to provide us uh, so that we can pass along to our listeners what, uh, what each of your respective opinions and viewpoints and, and data show, because uh, the goal is that everyone has a chance to, to speak their voice. And I want to steer the, the conversation in in a more sort of social level conversation about this project, because uh, obviously this is a, an incredibly important and contentious issue. And so I want to open up a, a question to all three of you um, that in having a societal level discussion about projects like Northern Gateway Pipeline, what is the question that you feel citizens should be asking themselves? So I'm going to start with uh, Tespora because we haven't heard from you in a couple minutes. So if you want to give us your thoughts on what is that social level question that we should be asking when we are reviewing projects like Northern Gateway Pipeline as a society? I think that the bottom line is that we should be reviewing um, whether uh, it is in the full national interest, and not just some companies' interests and some and and some industries' interests. And the fact is that our the processes in Canada no longer do that, in large part because of the lobbying of the oil industry and the pipeline industry. Documents that we've at- obtained through access to information show that the oil industry and the pipeline industry have been lobbying to gut Canada's environmental laws so that those environmental assessments that John referred to simply don't happen. And so we had documents revealed that showed the industry asking for certain environmental laws to be removed because they were simply in their way. And this government, the Harper Conservatives, responded by removing those laws. We saw 70-70 environmental laws gutted in Bill C-38. Uh, And the result of that, um, the direct result, is that over 3,000 environmental assessments were cancelled. Because environmental assessments are only triggered if, in fact, there are laws. The other really critical issue here is that the companies lobbied to restrict the mandate of the National Energy Board and our definition of national interest and who is directly affected. And that's because in the Northern Gateway process, they didn't like the fact that there were thousands of citizens, the majority, the far majority, and over 90% of people who participated in those hearings didn't want this project to go through. And so now when we see the National Energy Board process over other pipelines, like the Kinder Morgan pipeline that is also proposed through British Columbia, that process is 
so ridiculously limited. If you want to intervene as a public citizen in a public process now, you have to fill out an 11-page online form and be approved just to submit your comment. There's less forms to fill out to become a Canadian citizen. It, it, is an, it is a ridiculous bar of participation that limits our capacity to participate and limits the information that exists there. Canadians deserve a choice about what kind of economy that we're trying to create. And the process of restricting our laws and restricting the process so that there is not free speech in this country and quite frankly, the firing of scientists. The government has shut down 40 research programs that had to do with oil sands or climate change. They've fired some 2,000 scientists in the past six years and, and created a massive advertising campaign trying to convince Canadians that our future is dependent on the oil sands. And it's simply not true. Right now, the oil sands are 2% of our gross domestic product. There's no question that there are a, a number of jobs in this country that are currently dependent on the oil sands. And if we expand the oil sands as fast as companies like Enbridge and the oil, and the oil industry want to expand it, then sure, in the future, our economy will be dependent on the oil sands. But it's not now. So we have to look at the choices that we need to make in order to have a safe, clean economy. And for Canadians to have jobs... At home, we need to cap the expansion of the oil sands. We need to clean it up and we need to start transitioning out of it. And that's the conversation we should be having in Canada. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that. I think that was a really elegant response. And I want to first ask that same question to Art and then we'll we'll have John uh, give his his two cents as well. So uh, Art, if you can sort of frame for us, um, we're running a little bit tight on time. So if we could uh, frame for us... uh, in having that social level discussion about projects like the Northern Gateway Pipeline, what question or questions do you think we should be asking as a society? Well, I, it, it, in many ways, it, 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 it's similar to the answer that Sapora gave. But basically, uh, what we ask Canadians to look at when they when they look at a place like like British Columbia, when they look at our coast, uh, they look at what the values are in that area, and and they weigh those against something that is. You know, an, an, an industry that is, is uh, non-renewable uh, at some point in the future, it's going to go away. Uh, Coastal First Nations, uh, for the last 150 years, have been uh, fairly dependent uh, on their jobs around the forestry and fishing industries. Uh, those industries are down a little bit right now, but we, are still, we still have sustainable economies in the region. But... You know, 100 years from now, the oil industry, if, if, if they keep going at the rate that they're going at in Alberta, it won't exist anymore. But in the meantime, if we allow them to go into an area and, and, and create a mess that they can't clean up, we won't have anything else left in the region either. And I, so I'm, I'm a bit of a pragma, pragmatic person. I don't expect that the tar sands are going to shut down tomorrow. I don't think that we're going to wean off our, ourselves off of uh, oil uh, anytime soon. But I do know that we have to begin to take responsible steps to go there. In the meantime, in Canada, we don't have energy security. You know, we import oil now. We should be really worrying about how we develop that and create greater jobs for Canadians, doing it in a more responsible way, instead of worrying about rushing to the, to the, to the coast to, to get it offshore so that these companies can make as much money as they can possibly make in as short a period as they can. I think that's the pragmatic way to look at it. Make sure that when you're going to a province that, that uh, is a have province, uh, 
that has a sustainable economy that you don't do things that that try to change that culture that we have already. Okay, thanks for that, Art. So to to finish off, John, uh, taking again that question of when we're looking at this as a society, what questions should we be asking of ourselves? Well, I think the key question is to determine if from a project perspective, if it can be constructed and operated in a, a safe, reliable, environmentally responsible and financially sound manner. So I think those are are very key questions. We do have to assess the significance of the effects on the people and the environment and how those effects might be mitigated. And and if we want to proceed, set out the conditions for responsible construction operation of the project. So I think those are very sound. And I think, again, many of the concerns we've heard are legitimate and and we share the same vision of there can't be an accident and if we do everything we can to ensure there isn't one, if there ever is one, we can respond effectively. I think part of the board's job, though, and when we talked about a process, this one has been well over four years where the, they've heard, the board's heard from 9,000 letters of a comment, almost 400 participants, uh, statements from 1,200 individuals, and then there's 200, over 200 interveners. So that's what they looked at is all those questions, very legitimate questions are being asked. But sometimes you hear comments being made that things will be devastated forever or those we have to confirm if that's really the case. And that's what that panel process went through. And they came in a decision saying that they thought that it was in the Canadian interest. Same thing with comments about lobbying. Those kind of questions were well tested under oath in the hearing. And, and I, that's not the answer the board came up with after that fulsome review. And so, But the board was given a mandate, John, by the federal government, by the prime minister, and specifically by Minister Oliver in that open letter. They were given a mandate to review how the project should go forward, not if the project should go forward. And the fact is, we know that there were significant issues that we were not allowed to address in that hearing. The impacts of the oil sands. Well, they, the did, limit the, they did limit the questions that you could address because they didn't want to make it what's energy policy for the world. So it was there was restricted to what's relevant to the project, but certainly there was a very big question of whether the project should be approved or not. That was a key question the board has to answer. But the board no longer has the power to approve or not approve because the federal government took that away from what should be an independent decision and and put it soundly in the hands of cabinet. The board still had the opportunity to make a recommendation of whether they thought the project should proceed or not and that was they had to make that determination their recommendation and they had to do it based on technical science analysis it wasn't the number of participants it was sound analysis that they had to do but they clearly had that opportunity to recommend for or against the project or if they recommended for under what conditions were necessary to be done safely. I just, I think there's something wrong when the minister and the prime minister are saying even before that hearing went on, that this project was in the public interest and must be approved. That affects the process. And the fact is Canadians do deserve a choice. We do deserve an open conversation. And tell me one place in one process in this country where we are talking about the impacts of climate change or the fact that we won't meet our climate targets because we're producing more pollution every day entirely because of the expansion of the oil sands. I mean, across the country, people are walking to work. They're turning down their thermostats. They're doing everything they can. Municipalities are doing enormous work to reduce their emissions but we will shoot way past our emissions reduction targets entirely because of the expansion of one sector, the oil sands. And we're not having that conversation as a country. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to use your your comment around things that Canadians are already doing to combat some of the effects of climate change to transition into our, our last question that I wanted to pose to all of the members uh, of this panel. Um, 
for issues this complex, I know that there's, uh, you've brought it up to support a couple times about uh, sort of the ability for people to get involved or not get involved in these sorts of debates. And so I know that this is a subject that's incredibly polarizing, but there's a lot of passion on all sides of this subject. So uh, I want a, a sort of short response from each of you on what you think the optimal way for a citizen who's passionate, be it for the Aboriginal perspective, the environmental perspective, or the industry perspective, how, how can and how should people get involved? in this debate so that they can make an active difference in this conversation. So uh, I'll start with uh, Tispora and then we'll go to John and finish with Art. I think the most important thing for people across the country to do um, is to uh, engage in the issues by talking to our elected officials. They work for us. We, and, and so the fact is, I don't think that we're going to see significant movement on, this, on these issues in Canada until our MLAs and our MPs hear from us that we care, that we want a plan where we will actually address our, our growing climate pollution, that we want to be developing clean, safer, renewable energy. And, and until they hear that and they hear about our opposition to these pipelines, we'll continue um, to, to see uh, propaganda masquerading as policy. The fact is that this is an industry that is extremely powerful, and this specific federal government is listening to them and has put all their eggs in that basket. I mean, I, I had a conversation recently with an industry executive who said to me, but, you know, you're saying that you want to keep the majority of the oil sands in the ground? You know, that's crazy. You know, we, we could make a killing. The fact is, we don't need to make a killing in Canada. We need to make a living, and every Canadian deserves to make a living. And so the only way that we're going to ensure that we're building a clean future where we're at the leader, a lead, we're at the lead of addressing this development of a new economy is if Canadians engage. And so I would say, write to your MLA, call your MP, and, and engage with the organizations that you trust and support their campaigns, the, C the Sierra Club, uh, groups like Lead Now, who are really connecting organizations across the country, Coastal First Nations in British Columbia, or, or Dogwood, or Greenpeace. These are organizations who are doing everything they can to provide information without the multi-million dollar ad budgets of companies like Enbridge. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then uh, I'm going to move over to Art for your thoughts on on how the average person or the average citizen should be engaging in this debate. Well, in in British Columbia, um, you know, we that is exactly what Coastal uh, First Nations and others have been able to do. We've been able to get out there and and get information out to individuals so that they can they can express themselves, and and they've been doing that. We've been holding rallies in British Columbia. We've had tens of thousands of people out at different rallies. Uh, we have uh, people who are, you know, we, we, we've had surveys in British Columbia where for the last four or five years, 80% uh, of British Columbians have opposed tanker traffic on the coast. So the best thing that individuals can do is inform themselves. Once they inform themselves, once they realize that we're talking about an industry that's being irresponsible, this is an industry that is, that is not really worried about our environment. They're not really worried about whether they've got the technology to clean up the mess that they make. And, and if we hold this industry accountable, if they can step up and help develop technology that will make our pipelines uh, fault-free, if, if they can really do this in a safe way without spill, if, if they happen to spill, they should have the technology to clean it up. First Nations are providing information they're providing a rallying point, 
And we're asking all British Columbians and, in fact, all Canadians to help us uh, force this industry and Canada to come up with a Canadian energy strategy. We need a strategy. We need a plan. This is ad hoc, and, and it really isn't being done in the proper manner. Okay. And, and John, your thoughts on the question? Well, a lot of similarity in, in the response in terms of I, I think people need to be educated. And I think we could start with some of the bigger questions that start with what's the quality of life we as Canadians want. And that goes to all aspects in my mind. That goes to social, environmental, economic. Then we could talk about what's the role of energy and how is that energy provided and, and of what sources of energy are available to meet that objective. How can it be provided and how can it be provided safely and how can we in continually improve? And I think Art mentioned again, the use of technology investment and, and the oil industry is probably the largest investor in technology. So I think there is things that we could do if we start from a common grounds of where we do want uh, a quality of life and we want to do it safely and uh, respectful of the environment. How do we do that? And, and then again, I also agree with Art, how do we hold ourselves accountable, industry in particular? So I, I share that as the approach and then people need to, as best we can, make ourselves knowledgeable and participate in the decision making. So that's it for the questions that I have uh, today. And I want to take just a second to thank each and each and every one of you for participating in this. I know you don't necessarily have the, the same opinions and often have wildly different opinions on this project and how it should go forward. But I think it's a testament to the fact that uh, we're having this conversation and the fact that uh, as Canadians, we need more public forums like this where we can intelligently and professionally debate what are the, the opinions, what are the perspectives, and to do it as a, as a conjoined to unite industry and the environment and the Aboriginal perspectives that they don't need to agree on, and often they won't. But I think having a central point where we can all come together and, and have this conversation out in the open is a fantastic first step. And I just want to extend my, my deepest appreciation to, to all three of you for participating today and helping us raise the level of dialogue that's happening around these projects, because it's exactly what's necessary for us as Canadians to determine what we are comfortable with and what we are not comfortable with. So uh, I just want to sign off and say thank you to, to each of the three of you for participating and, and sharing your thoughts with us today. And thank you for creating the forum. Much appreciated. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sean. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Next up, we're going to look at the top stories and articles from This Month in Energy featuring Jennifer Matchett from Student Energy. This Month in Energy. Sir Richard Branson and NRG Energy have signed a deal that will see a small Caribbean island powered with 100% renewables. The renewable power-up of this island represents the first island of the 10 Island Renewable Challenge, a project driven by the Carbon War Room and the Rocky Mountain Institute. This week, Toyota issued the world's first green bond backed by auto loans. This $1.75 billion investment-grade bond will be backed by electric and hybrid auto loans. This breaking news is a big story for green financing. It will increase capital into the green investment stream and as well establishes transport as green for a bond issuance. It's not entirely clear how the Russia-Ukraine crisis will impact Europe's energy supply. Europe has diversified its gas options over the past five years and will likely look to other sources should gas taps be turned off through Ukraine. Further to this, Europe's mild winter means the nation probably has comfortable reserves that could stabilize its demand should supplies be obstructed. The fossil fuel divestment campaign is in full force, and Norway's $800 billion sovereign wealth fund is taking notice. 
News that the fund is evaluating whether it should divest its fossil fuel-related holdings has many speculating what this divestment could mean for the fossil fuel industry. A divestment from a fund this large could have major ramifications for the fossil fuel industry, specifically in terms of the precedent it will set. That's This Month in Energy for March 2014. We're now going to switch things up by examining a case study of how a business can do well by doing good for the environment. So I'm going to invite Peter Smalley into the studio. And before we kick off, Peter, can you give us the background of who you are, what you're working on, and what we'll be discussing today? Sure. I'm uh, Peter Smalley, and I work for uh, the Delphi Group as a consultant. And uh, the Delphi Group is a, a management consulting firm, and we specialize in uh, sustainability and, and climate change. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining us again, Peter. So give us a short overview of uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Sure. We're, we're talking about carbon trading and uh, specifically this case of uh, uh, BP and their internal uh, carbon trading system. Okay, perfect. So just to dive in, do you want to give us a sort of a quick executive summary on what carbon trading is for any of our listeners that aren't familiar? Sure. Uh, carbon trading is uh, a market-based mechanism that allows entities uh, regulated under a climate change regulation, which typically is a, is a cap and trade system, to buy and sell carbon credits in a, on an open market. Okay. So it's, it's a lot like trading oil, um, and, uh, and copper or, or gold uh, in an open market. You, you're given these allowances and uh, the credits um, for units of greenhouse gas emissions, and you trade these around. Okay. And so you said BP set up their own carbon trading scheme. So can you walk us through uh, sort of what BP did and give us the background on, on why they took it upon themselves to set up their own uh, carbon trading scheme? Sure. So in the late 90s, there was uh, a lot of talk from policymakers around the world uh, about introducing climate change regulations. And uh, BP, being very smart, came to the conclusion that uh, sooner or later, they were going to be regulated under some sort of climate change policy. Um, and, and they'd have to comply with it. And ultimately, their their preferred outcome was uh, a market-based mechanism like a cap-and-trade system. Okay. And again, this is 1999 we're talking about. So your sooner rather than later is very much later when we're yes. now in 2014 and there's still no formal climate scheme. Yes. Yeah. It's no. a, a pretty good example. Yeah. So uh, maybe we'll just dive in and can you give us the, the example? So, so what did BP do? What did they create? How did they implement their own carbon trading scheme? Well, uh, after a, a very public speech that uh, the then CEO, John, uh, John Brown, made at uh, Stanford, um, he, uh, he had come out publicly saying that uh, climate change was, was a real issue. Mm -hmm. uh, several years prior, BP was actually part of a coalition that <laughs> um, was very much opposed to talking about climate change. Yeah. Um, and... But BP, under the leadership of, of John Brown, they actually set a, a target of reducing 
their greenhouse gas emissions 10% below 1990 levels by uh, 20, by, by 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this was pretty consistent with some of the proposals under under international the international um, protocol, the Kyoto Protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, so so BP. Um, they were a big fan of of market based mechanisms, so they uh, they wanted to implement a, a cap and a cap and trade system. So they they decided that uh, they should experiment with it first um, internally. So they set up an internal cap and trade system. Just just to reflect BP's own emissions as a company. Yeah. So the the trading would actually be between uh, BP's business units. So mm-hmm. they're um, their old, uh, their their conventional uh, gas wells, as well as their um, their more mature fields, uh, oil fields, and and their refineries and their their chemical plants. So, mm-hmm. all of these uh, business units would trade credits amongst each other. Mm-hmm. So instead of a country to country trading scheme, it was a business unit to business unit scheme. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so, so what happens? So BP comes out and sort of very publicly switches from being a climate denier to um, leading the charge in reducing greenhouse gases. And so, what happens internally? Well, um, first and foremost, uh, BP actually achieved. Um, uh, well, th- they had set their target uh, of reducing emissions ten percent below nineteen ninety levels by twenty ten. Yeah. By the end of two thousand and one, they had already uh, achieved this this target. So two years into two, the scheme. Two years into the scheme, it was actually ten point six, ten point six percent reduction below nineteen ninety levels. That's absolutely fascinating. So yeah. uh, you'd think that in an organization of BP size, the first major corporation to do this themselves, that there would be the typical growing pains and things would be moving slower. So. Why was it such incredibly rapid reductions in their overall emissions? Well, when the uh, the task force had actually uh, initially set the cap, mm-hmm. um, it was a pretty loose cap, okay. uh, a 1% reduction. So they were targeting a 1% reduction per, per year. year. Okay. So over 10 years, 10%. Per, 10%. Fairly logical. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, they they noticed that uh, that the business units could actually exceed this pretty significantly uh, just over one year. Um, so they noticed that it wasn't really a tough tough enough cap yeah. uh, on emissions. Um, so they strengthened the cap yeah. uh, and set sort of a stretch target to encourage uh, the business units to trade trade more credits and yeah. and really look for those um, significant reductions in, in greenhouse gas emissions. And, and what were some of those? So you said the different business units are sort of working either with each other or sort of in, in, in isolation to reduce their emissions. So what were some examples of business units that were able to achieve some pretty interesting reductions well i believe it was the the natural gas the um north american uh, natural gas business unit uh they achieved really significant reductions just by reducing their uh venting venting of um, methane um, and uh, reducing their flaring and and they saved uh 
was actually they saved six hundred and fifty million dollars through through these initiatives uh, just by uh, being able to sell that gas back into the market. And, and to clarify, when you say they saved six hundred fifty million dollars, you mean in real tangible profits? Yes, they made yeah. an additional six hundred fifty million dollars while reducing their carbon emissions. That's that's correct. That's it's fascinating that that example exists. Yes, um, and so. What were the the final results? So what was the the sort of actual emissions reductions that was achieved? And and what would that look like if extrapolated across the the six major oil and gas companies? Sure. Um, Well, they actually reduced 9.6 million tons of uh, carbon emissions, carbon dioxide equivalent, so greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. So. Let's just round up for purposes of, of extrapolation to 10 million tons. Yeah. Um, so over over six companies, of course, that's 60 million tons of uh, carbon dioxide equivalents. Um, and to put that in a different different perspective, I don't always like these these types of conversions, but uh, it would be equivalent to taking about 12 million passenger vehicles uh, off of the road for one year. Yeah. Um, and and in Canada, you consider we have uh, about 30 million uh, registered vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's taking 40% of those cars off the road for one year. Yeah. And so the, qu- the next question I have is, is why, when we have such fascinating examples of sort of low-hanging fruit and when we pay attention to or we create some sort of real scheme to actually attack uh, climate change and, and global emissions. Why have we not made the progress that's necessary from a, either a national or a continental or, or global perspective? Right. It's um, it's a pretty complex world, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, really fraught with uh, a lot of opposing viewpoints. Um, I mean, you you survey uh, any number of oil and gas companies, and some will say. Uh, carbon tax. It's it's uh, administratively more simple than a cap and trade system. Others will say we need market based mechanisms that allow us to reduce our emissions and and ones that drive drive innovation. Um, so there's a it's a, it's a very complex world. And then you and that that's only in one country. We can't even decide on uh, the the right type of system in Canada. We have a. Uh, uh, carbon tax in BC. Uh, we have a baseline and credit system in Alberta, mm-hmm. and uh, Quebec now has a uh, linked up to California's cap and trade system. And then we have the federal government trying to come in and uh, yeah. seek equivalency agreements and very very complex stuff. With that, we're going to wrap up this segment today. And I just wanted to say a big thank you to the and to the team at Delphi for for allowing you to come on the show and for exposing us to what I think is a really fascinating case study on uh, how you can have a win on both. You can have a win on the environment and you can have a win on the bottom line, the economics. And I think more examples like this will really help with some significant action on on climate issues and, and simultaneously help improve the economic situation. So uh, thanks again, Peter. We, we hope to have you and, and the Delphi team back soon. Great. Thanks very much, Sean, for the opportunity to come and speak to you guys. Cheers. You're tuned into CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, and this is Energy Voices. 
I'm excited to welcome my next guest, Julie Kabuma, back to the studio to discuss this month's global updates, which will be focused on collaborative consumption. Welcome, Julia. Thank you, Sean. So today we'll be hearing global updates about collaborative consumption in South Africa and in Scotland. And collaborative consumption, or the sharing economy, is built around the sharing of human and physical assets. So in this case, we will be looking at transportation systems, uh, particularly around car sharing and carpooling. So first, we'll hear from Christina in Scotland. With nearly 40 million empty car seats on the UK roads every day, there was a plenty of room for reducing congestion and pollution. A former accountant at KPMG, Drummond Kilbert, set up Go Car Share in December 2009, a London-based online marketplace for empty car seats. A widely adopted concept in countries like Germany and France, car sharing has yet to gain popularity in Britain due to people's concerns over security. The smart idea was to harness the power of social networks to provide added assurance and let users see if they were connected to their potential share via a friend. There is no charge for using the site. Instead, GoCarShare relies on targeted advertising and expects to receive small commissions once the site has built up enough users to allow for efficient matching. Passengers pay a contribution based on mileage and all users can provide feedback on their journey. The challenge is now to reach a critical mass of users, but also to change people's perceptions about the concept within broader categories of demographics. So far, GoCarShare has proved successful with young people and students and increased the size of its market by offering travel services to and from music festivals across Europe. Beyond its smart vision of tomorrow's startup, GoCarShare is also a green movement that clearly benefits to the environment. The company has been unambiguous about its aim to become carbon negative and will keep on promoting sustainable travel. Thank you, Christina. Now we'll hear from Kai from South Africa, who will be speaking with Ashley from the Green Campus Initiative. Hey, I'm here with Ashley Artin, the chairperson of the UCT, University of Cape Town's Green Campus Initiative. Ashley, we were wondering if you guys are working on any collaborative projects in which you limit energy use and raise awareness. Yes, we've got a really awesome project which we started last year called RideLink. It's our new carpooling system. It's basically a website in which students can log on, say their schedule, where they live, and it'll link them up with other students in their area, and they can chat to each other, say, hey, I want to carpool with you. Um, And basically, you get to share petrol money, make some new friends, and find easy parking, Which um, because we've now got a special carpool parking lot that only people with three or more people in their car can get into. That sounds really exciting. Uh, How has it been going so far? It's been going great. Basically, all we need is numbers. We've got a lot of people so far, but it still needs to grow. We've started a YouTube video, which has got our friend Joe and a bunch of carpoolers having a really awesome time. So that's been going really well to get more and more people signed up. If we were interested in seeing this YouTube video, what is the, the link? Um, the link? The YouTube video is called um, UCT Ride Link website, but basically just type in Ride Link into YouTube. It's the first use video that comes up, and it's of our friend Joe holding his face and screaming, looking very frustrated in his car in the traffic. Uh, thank you very much, Ashley. Thanks for those case studies and updates, Julia. We look forward to having you back next month. Thank you, Sean. That brings us to the end of this month's episode of Energy Voices. I want to again send thanks and draw special attention to the panelists for the Great Pipeline debate. 
While obviously a contentious subject, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the fact that each of them is willing to step up and have a real conversation about energy and the role the pipelines will play in the future of Canada, both from an industry, environment, and Aboriginal perspective. I again encourage all of you to participate in this discussion online using hashtag Energy Voices on Facebook or on Twitter. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Mark Affeld with production assistance from Kiever Trombley. We would like to thank Julia Kavuma, Jennifer Matchett, Kai Koitsi, and Christina Pakala for their contributions to today's show. Our next episode will air Tuesday, April 29th at 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on CJSW 90.9 and streamed globally at cjsw.com listen. Thank you, and we look forward to hearing from you again next month.